When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk to Ed Masonette of the Sports Fan Journal. He's the editor-in-chief there and SB Nation about the Oklahoma City Thunder. He's from there and Russell Westbrook in particular because what Russell has been doing recently is just remarkable. So we start out there, then we start talking about the rest of the West, then we get back into Russ and the MVP race and lots of interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. It Runs in total about an hour and five minutes, and I hope you enjoy it. Had a lot of fun recording it with it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, my brother. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, so I, I figure the best place to start is with Russell Westbrook. He's been playing ridiculously so far, but to you, has this been really outside of what he had done before? Is this more just him having a different opportunity? Uh, I think it's both, because on one hand, I have been pre from the book of Westbrook for years that like you have to just embrace who he is and what he's doing and what he's capable of. I think what's happening right now with the confluence of circumstances that is Kevin Durant being out, the roster being overturned in the last month or so, and the fact that Oklahoma City's fighting for their playoff lives as an eight seed has turned Russell Westbrook into a super saiyan in real life. And I apologize if there's anybody that listens to this podcast that doesn't recognize a Dragon Ball Z reference when I give it. Um, You're just going to have to catch up and get on the Wikipedia. But Russell Westbrook is doing things at at a level that's damn near unprecedented. And it's it's been a fun treat to witness. And um, it's, it's, it's weird because on one hand, I feel like, oh, I told you so. But on the other hand, I don't even know if I envisioned this level of output that he's had now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's about the way that I'd say it. you and I were both have been high on him for as long as I've known you. And what is exciting to me also is to see him really have the chance to run a team because other than Dion Waiters, who thinks he can run a team, they don't really <laughs> have many guys that are playing with him that can do it. So if you look at things like his usage rate, it's really, really high. But the team, in my opinion, they need that to be high because that without Kevin Durant on the floor, that's their best chance of winning. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to, to witness. Uh, one of the things I've actually compared it to is Kobe's time maybe seven, eight years ago uh, before they landed Paul Gasol and they just kind of became a championship uh, contender again where Kobe really dominated the ball and he facilitated pretty much everything the Lakers did. And right now you're you're watching Oklahoma City and everything flows through Westbrook. Uh, and, and really, it, it, to use another Lakers comparison, it kind of reminds me of how the offense used to flow through Shaquille O'Neal and everything revolved around him. So there's now this conversation of how does Kevin Durant, when healthy, come back into the fold? And you wonder, is it something where Westbrook is like the immovable object and then Kevin Durant revolves around him as the unstoppable force? Kind of like how Shaq and Kobe was during their three-peat. Because right now, Westbrook is in peak form and KD has to kind of get a fold. And it's a weird conversation to have, like whose team is it? Because I'm one of those believers that... It's nobody's team. It's just the team. This is how the team is. Uh, but we've seen how Westbrook and Durant like to take turns dominating the offense and, and steering the week. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how it goes if it flows through Westbrook and then Durant serves as the counter. Uh, it's just intriguing. We got to get Kevin Durant has to get healthy and we have to see what that looks like because this roster is just so different. Their front court right now is so fascinating to watch with Cantor and Ibaka out there at the same time. Even though Cantor is deplorable defensively, he does so much more offensively and he's been so exclusively paired with Ibaka, which is who is one of the best defensive bigs in, in the league. Um, and now they've got Cantor, I mean, excuse me, Adams coming back, you know, the the everybody's favorite uh, player in the state of Oklahoma, which is Mitch McGarry and Nick Collison there. And then they still have to try to integrate Kevin Durant back into playing power forward as well when they play small lineups. So they're going to be uh, fun to watch in the last 20 or so games. Um, and it'll just be interesting to see how Brooks decides to delegate authority or the lack of delegation of authority because his name still is scott brooks um i'd be interested to see kind of what hear what you think about the situation too well yeah i think you you hit on a couple of a huge things and one of them is that the talent in a lot of ways makes more sense and i would say that the addition of Cantor makes a lot more sense while duran is out because he's a guy who's a good offensive player he can use possessions and when you don't have kevin durant out there you have a lot more use for a guy like Anis Cantor. And Serge Ibaka covers a lot of his mistakes, which is very important because Cantor has them. But if you have a guy who's protecting the rim and he can do it from the four, then that's wonderful. The challenge in some ways for me is going to be how do you balance letting Durant do his thing with Westbrook and how do you play them together? They have great personal chemistry, but one of the things that many of us have criticized Scott Brooks for over the years has been that he's been too willing and too eager or whatever to play Durant and and Westbrook together that he didn't do as much of the staggering. I think one of the incontrovertible pieces that we have learned during the stretch is give Westbrook a few minutes to let him be himself and be the ball-dominant guru that he is, and some of those minutes should be with Durant as well. Obviously, you don't want to get the balance too far off, but give Westbrook his time, give Durant his time, and make sure that the pieces around them make sense. So when 
Westbrook is out there, make sure that he has shooters. Make sure that a guy like Anthony Mora, who I think has done a pretty good job while Durant has been out, that guys like that are around them. And then when Durant's there, maybe you want more of a traditional facilitator. But so you kind of, you work in, I would think of it as kind of three different teams, and whichever one you use the most is whoever's playing the best. Right, yeah, it's... I am I am a believer that Anthony Morrow should be playing almost all the time, but of course I'm not the one that gets paid to make those decisions. Although I although I do think that uh, Andre Roberson has played better than I expected, I am still a believer in Dion Waiters. But at some point, minutes are going to be squeezed, and some people are just play themselves out of time. And the sad thing is, I always feel like it's Morrow who's sitting. And it's waiters who's out there because he's the middle ground in some weird way because Marl's an exceptional shooter, an offensive threat. He's an efficient offensive threat. And Roberson is a great defensive option, athletic option. But if you need somebody in the middle, it's waiters. And then the problem becomes, oh, yeah, waiters also thinks he's better than anybody else on the floor. So it becomes hard to defend him in these circumstances. And that's why my position has been really to maybe just play Morrow out there the most. Um, I thought that Augustine and Westbrook have had their high moments, but they're, defensively they've been very shoddy. But that could still work out over time. And Augustine has done a remarkable job playing playing out there. And Singler, too. Uh, Singler's minutes are going to definitely be cut even more when KD comes back. Um, but what's fascinating now in the West is that, yeah, everybody's having this conversation now. Is it going to be Golden State at Oklahoma City? I think the real conversation now is that the middle of the Western Conference is starting to look a lot more appealing. You have... Portland, God bless Wesley Matthews in a contract year blowing his Achilles and and he's done for the season. But Portland now looks like an attractive uh, opponent. Dallas shoddy since the Rajon Rondo trade. They're 14 to 14 last 28 games. And, you know, and even teams like like Memphis uh, have, have, have haven't looked as crisp and as strong as they have in the past. And, and it looks like San Antonio is playing well. The Clippers are going to get Blake Griffin back. Um, you know, Houston has played at a high level, even without Dwight Howard. So that middle is going to be fascinating to watch and see how it progresses. But we're going to probably still get Oklahoma City and Golden State in round one, unless the Pelicans find a way. And that might end up being the best series of the West. Yeah, it might even be the best series in the first or second round, which is a little bit sad. But to, I'm still, if you want to call it rooting selfishly, with finger quotes, for Dallas to fall enough so that Oklahoma City can pass them. <laughs> it's a it's a five-game lead right now. But if you want to think about it from a us as basketball fans, if you want to think about it from the NBA perspective, losing the Thunder or the Warriors guaranteed in the first round is not good for the league. But, you know, you have to let the best teams win. So it's not like they should, you know, make the, make that not happen. But it would be a great series that would kind of be the kind of the lead in if you want to call it the gateway drug of this year's playoffs. But then you're missing that the rest of the way. What you the point you brought up that I think is the most interesting right now is that and I'd like to get your opinion on it is if you were to let's assume the Warriors are number one in terms of teams that are make the playoffs that you least want to face, is it possible that Oklahoma City and the Spurs in either order, assuming health for both of them, would be two and three? Absolutely. Because you have Oklahoma City, which arguably has the best collection of talent in the league, and then you have the Spurs who has the best coach in the NBA and probably the smartest collection of talent in the NBA. You don't want those. Those are the combinations you don't want. Like you take any other option, 
outside of playing LeBron James, who's probably fourth on the list, right? So, yeah, I mean, I would agree in every aspect. I think there are going to be certain teams. I think Memphis is always going to be a team you want to avoid because Memphis has has told us time and time again, we're not coming out of our style. We don't care if you continue to beat us in some ways with the lineup that we're going to put out there, but we're going to keep Zebo and Marcus all out there and we're going to force you to deal with the fact that you probably don't have two near seven footers who weigh 270 to 280 pounds who are nimble and depth and um, agile and, and creative around the rim to make devastating things happen um, on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. So Memphis is probably up there too. And then I think everything after that is, is, is a crapshoot. Then you start really looking at what are the teams I'd love to play like the Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> yeah. My, so my theory with Memphis and I, you kind of alluded to this, you and I, I don't think I've ever talked about this is that they have created a, a, a machine that is very hard to beat, but at the same time, they're, not at the level where they can beat everyone. I think that they had a chance, you know, uh, was that last year or two years ago when, because of various injuries, but to me, what Memphis is, is they're kind of like the last boss. They're like that, but you get an unlimited number of restarts because there's so many teams that have talent. They're not, I don't think they're going to be able to, to take on a team like the Warriors or the Spurs, I don't. I think they could maybe beat one of them because they're very good and they're and and they have a lot of talent. And Marcus is incredible. Conley's underrated, but I don't think they can win a title because I don't think they can beat everyone that's put in front of them. I don't know if I'd agree with that. I would say more that their team is a very solid team. Their thing is they don't have a high variance ability to play at a certain level. Like if you just took everybody, if you just put in a vacuum, you said. If if every team played their A plus game, where does Memphis rank? I think if they played their A plus game, they probably are like the tenth best team in the league, right? If if they run up against Golden State or Oklahoma City or Cleveland or even like San Antonio and they play their A plus game against them, they're gonna lose because they're just not capable from an output standpoint, from a performance standpoint, of being able to hit top speed. They're like your your uncle's Buick that's been running for 20 years and you don't really need a tune up, but it's reliable. It's strong. It's got a good engine. It can, it can hold up stuff. Um, you know, it, it looks good, even though it's been through some things, but it ain't going to get to zero to 60 in 4.5 seconds. And it can't turn corners like other cars. Right. So, you know, it, that doesn't mean that it isn't a great car, but it just means that I think if somebody else is able to play at a higher level than them more consistently, then I think that's where they get into trouble because we've seen them play Oklahoma City. And we see in, in Oklahoma City, they played that one of the most insane. It's probably the reason why I'm like have a receding hairline now. This was three years ago, I believe, or four years ago. And Oklahoma City was playing Memphis and Oklahoma City blew them out like three times. And Memphis beat them by like two points three times. And they went to this game seven that went into overtime. And it was just a ridiculous series because Oklahoma City would play phenomenal basketball. Then there'd be other moments where Oklahoma City would play bonehead basketball. And and Memphis would keep chugging along, playing their system, playing their style, wearing Oklahoma City down. And ultimately, Oklahoma City won just because they were better. So... I think this is probably the best Memphis team that they've had with Jeff Green on it. But... If they catch the team, it's 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 kind of like the the coin flip, except for 
the coin is slightly shaded on one side and you know it being a 50 50 chance there's a 52 to 48 percent chance that they might win or lose you take up for what it is that's a great point i was thinking when you were talking about variance to me the two highest variance teams in the playoffs right now would be cleveland and houston do you agree with that Oh man, when you, I, I would probably throw the Clippers in there too, because oh, that's a good the call. Clip, the Clippers can look really good. I mean, you just look at the Golden State game as an example. I think the first quarter, Clippers, like the beginning of the first quarter against the Golden State game against Golden State on Sunday, they looked great. They, you know, everybody was making shots. They were getting up and down the floor, and then they just hit this lull, and they look like five guys that just met at the YMCA ten minutes ago and decided to run pickup. Like they just look lost. Now, some of that is because of injuries. Nate Robinson just got integrated to the lineup. You know, they still got guys named Spencer Hawes and Big Baby Davis on the roster, so they're only going to be so good. And Glenn R- Doc Rivers' son, right? But yeah, they just have those times where they just look really bad, and then they look really good. I would say Cleveland's probably improved their baseline since the All-Star break, since making those acquisitions, but I don't know. I'd probably I'd probably throw LA in there first if I was going to choose them more than Houston and, and, and Cleveland. Yeah, that's definitely fair, just because I like ripping on him a little bit, even though I had him really high in the draft. People who want to dig through that can look. If Austin Rivers was on the Thunder right now, with their count, how many minutes do you think he'd get, even with Durant out? Oh, he'd get a lot of minutes. He'd be a great ball uh, water boy for the Thunder, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I keep on going back to your point about, I agree with you, about the bottom of the West versus the middle of the West. I don't know if you and I have ever talked about it, but I've for years advocated for the idea that the best team should be able to choose their opponents. Do you think that that would be a, a smart system? If you, if you, we'll phrase it this way: If you had control of the NBA, would you consider something like that? I think you would create bloodlust in the league, and you would have. I mean, it would be. It's one of those things, like in the video game world, that's like the greatest thing ever. Or in fan, in a fantasy world, that's the greatest thing ever. I think you would have next level shenanigans and tomfoolery of teams positioning themselves to be able to do certain things like that. And also, you know, you don't, you never know how motivation is going to work on other teams. Now that's something that's not measurable. That's something that's very intangible. It's something that's like, Oh, I feel it in my gut type of thing. Right. But it would, it could cause more drama, but I don't think as much as I love Adam Silver, I don't love Adam Silver, but as much as I encourage the things that Adam Silver is doing, I don't think he's as liberal as you are, Mr. LaRue, on taking something like that on. Now, the fact that this option of one of reseeding teams from 1 to 16 uh, is continuing to float and hold water is really interesting because I think now if I'm the East, I wouldn't mind that scenario as much because the middle of the West is starting to look – slightly suspect because of injuries and and roster uh shenanigans and things like that so you know it's i feel like some of this is really cyclical and i think certain things i don't mind changing and tweaking other things i think we're probably better off leaving as is and believe it or not i am actually a proponent of leaving this particular thing as is because we can't forget that the East used to be the beast of the East for a reason. And everybody in the West was crying, you know, why are these teams in the West making it? So, you know, this this thing, these types of things always come back around. 
for you being a patsy on this, I'll try to cut a little clip of you saying Adam Silver is I uh, I love Adam Silver and make that on repeat just so we can make sure we have that out there. Feel free. I'm all, I'm all for it. The reason that I support things like that is to me going 1 to 16 or what I would do, go 1 to 16 but allow 1 to 8 to pick their opponents of the bottom of the, of the bottom 8 is that it doesn't matter if it's cyclical. Basically, it's a persistent system. But at the same time, I understand. I've had people on the podcast this is something I like to talk about. Talk about that they like the east versus west rivalries, but that gets into another thing I want to talk with you about, which is how do you feel, as somebody who's lived in various parts of the country, about the fact that the East versus West, which teams are in which conference, isn't super accurate right now? You know, there are teams like Milwaukee in the in the East, even though places like New Orleans are substantially further east than them. Right. Yeah, I'm actually I, – I, I think that's maybe part of my issue, right? If you're going to have these types of tweaks and you have to consider overhauling the entire system – and in this day and age with travel being the way it is with accommodations and people, people, players being able to take care of their bodies and everything, I think we could have a situation where you just got rid of divisions and conferences and just made it so that every team played each other twice and then you left room in there for regionality and rivalries. I, I would be a proponent for that. Like, I think that's kind of where it goes it's like if i'm gonna as one of the great rap philosophers uh said ain't no such thing as a uh, half step it don't don't go out there half step if you're gonna do it go all the way and i'm with you on that now yeah because we have memphis in in the west and we have new orleans in the west and that doesn't make any sense at all so you know i'm all for i'm all for that type of change if we're gonna totally commit to it i'm incredibly proud that you made a dragon ball z reference and a big daddy kane reference in the same podcast what i do i'm I'm here for the people you're here for the people yeah and the other people don't think about this but in terms of shortening the season the party that might actually be the most against it even though i think that they'd be silly shorthanded to do so is that since because of the current revenue split the players lose half of the money you know if they cut down the revenue they lose a lot of that and owners actually would comparatively benefit because as you know the playoffs the players get paid a lot less than the owners make Absolutely. Well, I think <laughs> I think the players have had to make some decisions as far as what battles they want to fight. Like, it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about the hot topic in the NBA as of late has been the age limit again. And a lot of people complain about the ethical and even now racial complications of the age limit. But this is the player. The players' association has partially come to the decision, like, "Hey, we want that the age limit needs to be in there so that we can keep veterans paid." And I think, in the players' eyes, it's almost more important for them to feel like they're on equal ground with the owners versus the ability to make more money with the owners. It's one of those conversations you always have or arguments you have. Do you want to be right or do you want to get it right? And if you said you wanted to get it right, you might give more leverage to the owner so that they could build the greater good. But from a pride standpoint, you want to keep equal footing and say we want that 50-50 split. And we want certain things to be in place to make sure that people know that we matter in a way that does or does not always make sense. And the other huge pivot point in the next CBA, so that's going to be, I believe it's 2017, might be, yeah, it's 20, summer 2017, 
is between the max players and the non-max players because we could see a system right now basketball has what most people would call a very low individual maximum salary. And while you can justify that because I don't think teams are spending any more or less money, that's the way they did the system, we now have a lot of players who are at the top of the player power structure who are in that caliber and figure to be there in 2017. So we could see a shift on those lines as well. Yeah, uh, uh, this is a very interesting thing about professional sports in the United States, right? I believe of all the major sports in the world, we only have two that really have salary caps, which is the NFL and the NBA. And that's where it's, uh, we could go down this rabbit hole if you want to, uh, but we've seen Premier League soccer be be the most dominant league in the world, and they've thrown caution to the wind about how does people how they should govern their teams to sp- spend their money. Now they have uh, fair play, financial fair play acts, and things like that where people just can't be ignorantly spending so much money. But even then, pe- the owners abuse it. But that doesn't make the product any more or less uh, entertaining. And even the, even now, what we have with baseball is people have. You know, there there's free spending by the the top teams in baseball, but routinely those aren't the teams that end up winning at all, right? So uh, I think that would not shift even if we incorporated something like that in the NBA. Uh, well, I I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I'm willing to take that stance wholly, but I do think that you know what are we really giving a salary cap for? Because now players don't feel like getting their worth because we all know if LeBron at the market right now which he's scheduled to do next season he could command a hundred million dollars Kevin Durant could command a hundred million dollars who knows what he could command right so you'd have to see your people don't mind selling players on parity along with the ability to have structured contracts because that pair that the financial parity um, by having a a, a, a or ceiling for a salary cap means that more people are actually able to get paid, in my opinion. Because while the TV revenues are large and the stadium revenue is large, I don't know how sustainable that is for 30 teams or 32 teams in the league and how many people would actually get big money. I don't know. Yeah, and it, it's also weird to me to have a league where the people, if you were to say, okay, these are in general the people who are the most underpaid. It's guys on rookie contracts, which is unsurprising. That's true in almost every league. And the best players. And it's mm-hmm. it's very strange to me to have the best players be the ones who are the most reliably underpaid. I am always curious as to what is a sustainable alternative and i think that's the question you have to ask it's very interesting to see uh, i know nobody on this podcast is going to care but if you want to read something interesting read up on the mls's um new cba they just struck with their players union and they had something where if you were not a designated player, so every every MLS franchise basically had two players where they could pay the M- the league, the MLS, and the team would basically share the payment of paying that player. So, for example, when Thierry Henry was on the New York, New Jersey Red Bulls, um, I believe he was getting like $5 million a year, and some of that was paid by MLS and some of himself. Um, and when Clint Dempsey came over from Tottenham Hotspur over to the Seattle Sounders, he was placed on the Seattle Sounders. 
And then they helped negotiate the contract for Clint Dempsey. Now, they have that rule in place to try to create parity around the league. And then also their current pledge to the players was that you could get free agency. Kurt Flood would turn over his grave if he heard this. But you could actually achieve free agency if you had played for the same team for 10 years. Then you could be qualified for free agency. And that is and, – and, and, that is the players union was like that's insanity that's borderline slavery and you know indentured servitude things you know those types of buzzwords that people love uh but my point in that is that the reason why they have those things in place is because the mls isn't making any money they're they're primed as a league to finally turn profits and they've shown growth in many areas those owners aren't making money. Some might be making a little bit, but as a whole, they're generally uh, treading water. They're they're flat. So you know what is the option for MLS? So MLS came down on their free agency limitations, and you know they but they're also going to give an opportunity for a player if they want to play in LA and the team they're they're currently working for they're making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year that person could potentially look to take a pay cut because maybe his family lives in southern california or maybe he just wants to live in la then he maybe has that option but the nba would ever never be able to actually put something like that together because the nba knows the nba players know that those owners are making money and so that kind of comes back to your point is in why is there a salary cap and why is there this devaluing of superstars so i think you either turn it into the wild wild west or you try to have a controlled atmosphere for the greater good of the league and i don't know you know this side has proven to be semi-sustainable even though we're threatened with the lockout every so often but i would be scared and insanely intrigued to see any alternative yeah, and you you raise a great point with the owners and the players, and what I like to say on that is that people are talking about how the salary cap is going to explode, and that's true, but yep. the players only get half of that money, so you think about how that's going to go, and generally speaking, it's not going to cost more to run a team when the league is making a lot more money, so basically that money's going straight into profit for the owners. Exactly. Of course. Like, look, man, the game is not... Look, man, the game is not rigged for the player to win all the profit than the owner. And I say player significantly on purpose because it's like a casino game. Like, you're going to win on the casino, but the house is always going to win more than it gives out. So that's that's just kind of how this thing goes. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this shifts when more media outlets become available across different screens. So we've seen that... Um, TV, like it's a big deal right now that HBO is going to have a new system where they're going to have HBO now where you can have streaming cable um, to HBO for a subscription fee. And you're going to, and NBA League Pass is already a really dominant player in regards to being able to provide streams to their players. And you see Google still trying to pitch in, and then they have their overseas deals. More and more overseas deals are being struck for media rights. So I don't know how that's going to continue to grow the salary cap. But I think the players are at least mindful of it, and especially now that LeBron is now has jockeyed for more position power within the players, it's very smart. And I don't think there is anyone the NBA has had a player maybe since Patrick Ewing, but that would probably be bad to compare because 
they definitely had a lockout on Patrick Ewing's watch, so he's probably not the best person to use for this scenario. Uh, but I'd be interested to see how in tune LeBron's people are in influencing that situation, along with Michelle Roberts, to see if they can get as much out of the new CBA as possible. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I wanted to give you an idea, which considering your background, I think your team would be very interested in this. One thing that I actually proposed in an old mid-level exceptional article a couple months ago is that there should be an exception to the CBA, written into the CBA, of course, where if a player had been on a team for a certain number of years, I think I said five in the piece, they would be, they could have two exceptions. That One is that the player would, half of up to half of their salary would not count against the salary cap. And up to half of their salary would not count <laughs> against the max. So what that would mean that in this in a situation like that, Oklahoma City could theoretically offer Kevin Durant twice as much money as anyone else. And so what that would give is it would give them an incentive. So if they want to keep guys, and what I would do with the 50% thing is that would be great for a guy like Kobe. So like let's say Kobe's they want to pay him $20 million. He's obviously not a $20 million basketball player right now, but he is worth $20 million to the Lakers. So then they can pay him the money they want, and while the MLS did it where the league paid part of it, it allows the teams to do that, but it also gives an advantage to players staying home because right now I think that's actually one of the huge flaws in the current CBA is that there aren't enough reasons for a player to stay where they are, and it, it could end up hurting teams in the very near future, like two years from now. Danny, if you want to just come out and call this the James Harden rule, you're more than welcome to do so. Like, I, I see what you're doing. You're not slick. Your your deception has been called out, and it's okay. I can handle it. I'm a big boy. I was going to call it the Kevin Durant rule. It could be called the Kevin Durant rule, and I and see, this is why you're not slick, because you've tried to shift. It's like you've moved the goalposts, okay, because I heard that and immediately thought of James Harden, but it is very fair to call that the Kevin Durant rule because of what's about to happen in in, in two years. So, yeah, you're not going to stress me out. Like, I'm not – I don't have beads of sweat on my forehead right now thinking about what you've just uh, put into the air with this conversation, but I will say this. It's weird in a way that people like the league right now is starting to grow off of the talent that's been uh, grown in Oklahoma City with James Harden flourishing in Houston. We see uh, Reggie Jackson doing pretty good things in Detroit. And I think when guys like Perry Jones and, and Jeremy Lamb and, and guys like that on that roster are free uh, because they just can't play on Oklahoma City's roster, I think they're going to actually be pretty good. And I think there's no better incentive for people to for organizations to make use of their their own assets and cultivate those assets um, than to to give them every opportunity to keep them in house, especially when people are using because like right now, everybody uses everybody's using draft picks and expire what used to be the expiring contract and these things to to leverage slight position up or down either up the draft board or up the playoff ranking ladder right and those things at the end hardly ever mean that much so we end up having a whole bunch of noise um but if you can't keep those guys that you took all that time and energy to invest in and then you've grown them so well and you've groomed them so nicely and they flourish because you sought them out and now you can't afford to keep them that almost feels uh wrong and how many times have we actually seen an elite player that's what that's that's what makes the james harden deal so big 
because we've never seen a, a rookie level player bolt to get a max deal somewhere else on another team. It's been like it's been like almost 20 years. I think when Shaq did it back in the in the early 90s because he wasn't going to sign in Orlando. Right. So um, those types of shifts are huge and it, it mimics the Larry Bird rule which is to kind of keep your own players that you have those relationships with and you keep them there. So I, I would, of course, before that, um, I would also say it's a couple years late um, if and when they ever get that passed. But, you know, there's, right, so it's kind of, it, it, the one other thing I'd add to that, Danny, is it evens the playing field for teams that have to go up against the Miamis the Lakers and the Knicks and teams that have the fattest payrolls, because I don't think there's anything wrong with teams having fat payrolls in quality destinations of life. Like the Goran Dragic rule where he's like, I want to go to Miami, New Yorker or LA because I want to live a great lifestyle and I'm in my late twenties and I'm out here trying to flourish. I'm 30, excuse me, nothing wrong with that. But like, that's what keeps Utah in the, in Siberia all the time because they just don't have anything really to offer unless I'm Mormon or I just like living in the Rocky mountains. Like there's not a lot to offer there. So yeah, I think that does even the playing field and it creates more parity within the league. Yeah. I th- a lot of great points there. I will also add that pioneer days is pretty cool having been there for that in Utah, but yeah, I, I want to go. I want to go back to Russ because he's one of the main things I want to talk about. And what I've been asking people the last couple of weeks, because there isn't a clear rule on it, is for you it's a little bit different. It's how do you define MVP in your head? What does that mean? And where does Russell Westbrook fit into that for you? Sure. So, yeah, I got cussed out by everybody in the Bay Area last week because I was on my podcast and I was talking to some Warriors fans, and I just said flatly, like, I think Stephen Curry's fourth in the MVP ranking, and I think. Uh, LeBron is first, and I think Harden and Westbrook are two and three, and I think Curry is four. To be fair, I think I've probably shifted my thoughts on that a bit. If I had to vote right now, I'd probably vote Westbrook second. I'd probably vote Harden first, and LeBron third, and Curry fourth. And I think it's very simple. Stephen Curry's been the is the best player on the second best team in basketball. I think Curry and Harden have been the most consistent. Um, for their teams and being the foundation of that team all season. I think Harden's output has been more than Curry's, but we still need to recognize the fact that LeBron James is the best player in the world. And I think the one thing that's actually been talked about a little too much is we've talked about Russell Westbrook's, you know, he's gone on this triple double streak. He's averaging these absurd numbers. Um, But it wasn't like Russell Westbrook was a slouch before this uptick in performance came out. Like he was already, he made the all-star team uh, with some pretty strong numbers before he exploded. Right. Uh, The only knock that you're really going to have on Westbrook is that he missed games. And I could say that Westbrook has been more valuable even because even if he's missed games, he's done everything he could humanly possible to get back in the fray. Whereas someone like LeBron has been valuable because not only he's the best player in the world, but he's taken off the most the best player in the world cap and he's put on the general manager hat and he went to go help acquire players for his roster and he took the time off because he realized it's a long season. So you could you could measure value in different ways, right? Uh, you know, if we're just looking at stats and output and performance 
Uh, I think you could lean, you could actually lean Westbrook or you could lean Harden. It's a shame that we don't have anybody from Atlanta to nominate, but I think they have been the best team, even though they play in the East. I think you have one A and one B with Curry and the Warriors and the Hawks. Um, so Curry's going to get that, get those votes um, for that reason. But Curry's value has also been that he just hasn't really missed any games. I think he's missed two games all season and he's just been a consistent performer all season. So my vote as of today would be Harden, Westbrook, LeBron, and Curry, uh, because this is an abnormal season. Like under any other circumstance, I think Curry would be a landslide winner. Or if this was a season, you know, in other years, maybe Westbrook or Harden easily wins it. But I think this is, this is you could pick any of them out of a hat, and I think they'd all be the correct answer. Uh, but that's where I'm at right now. Do you think that Westbrook's case is substantially better than Anthony Davis's? I think they're very similar cases to me, and I would argue that even with Durant missing so much time, that Westbrook's surrounding talent is meaningfully better than Anthony Davis's. Maybe, but Anthony Davis, unfortunately, is going to get dinged because his team actually did pretty good without him and Ryan Anderson um, while he's been hurt. So, uh, yeah, because Anthony Davis is probably the fifth fifth place in the MVP voting, uh, but he's not getting invited to the Heisman Trophy ceremony, so to speak. It'd only be four nominees. He's that far behind. Um, but yeah, Anthony Davis has been phenomenal. I think the things that Westbrook is doing in all facets of the game, and he's been without help, and he's been with a roster that's turned over, and he's got to deal with Scott Brooks as a coach, which you know, that's a, that's a thing within itself. And like Anthony Davis doesn't have any favors because Monty Williams is his head coach. So I get it. Uh, but it's, we just, it's, it's just, it's a damn shame that we can't even put Anthony Davis really in the conversation. You're really trying to, and I respect it and he deserves some mention, but it's not, he's not even close. And, and, and the funny thing is the Pelicans might end up making the eight seed over Oklahoma city. And I still don't think any Anthony Davis would deserve an MVP nod at all. So that's that's just kind of where we're at right now. Would giving out a most outstanding player in addition to most valuable player help the situation at all? I think you would be better served. Actually, um, one of my Twitter followers actually mentioned creating a uh, offensive player of the year award versus because we already have a defensive player of the year. Um, and like in the NFL, you have an offensive player of the year um, and we tend to measure these things as kind of what do you do for the offense is kind of the greater good of value. Uh, but I would wonder how that would net out if you just took an, an offensive perspective, because I think when we're looking at the MVP, we're not really considering defense, which is part of the reason why LeBron almost always wins because he's always been really strong defensively, even though this year he's had his lap, his lapses on the defensive end. And we've seen Harden improve his defense, but his defense is now from moribund and decrepit to, to simply like mediocre or average. Right. Um, and, and Curry's good, but he's still not. A, a great defender and I would say Westbrook's probably the best defender of the four but he still gambles too much and uh and, and so that hurts him from time to time so I wonder if giving a offensive player of the year award would help this in any way um versus MVP because 
everybody knows and you know value is is all in semantics and how you want to define it i that's why i think i almost always want to give lebron the mvp because i think at this point we're almost looking for reasons not to give lebron the mvp and we only do that for players that are that good like michael jordan when we are looking for reasons not to give jordan the mvp and i kind of think that's where we're at right now that certainly happened in 2011 that's how derrick rose got how derrick yeah. rose got his my other idea with that uh, is that I think it would be really fun to give most outstanding and most valuable and have a separate thing that if a player won both in the same season, there is a permanent trophy like the equivalent of the Stanley Cup that actually that <laughs> player gets to keep, and it only transfers when a player wins both. So like, let's say probably what happened, LeBron two years ago would have won both. Maybe Durant did next year. So then if maybe Durant and LeBron split them or something happens like that, then that trophy doesn't move. But then the, but then uh, like three or four years from now when Anthony Davis wins them both, then LeBron has to give that trophy to Anthony Davis. The only caveat I'd say is what do you do for Jordan's 88 season when he was probably – offensive and defensive MVP and would have been the and won the MVP in that season does he just get the trophy dipped in gold and have his handprint on it or something what do you do for that yeah I think you put all the players on on it who have won it and for Jordan he's a billionaire now I don't think he cares too much <laughs> fair actually fair. No, knowing him he probably does care he probably oh, yeah, would care absolutely. about that he would probably say something to the effect of oh you want this trophy come to the house and get it take it out of my cold dead hands and then like nobody would ever take it away because mj seems like the type that might fight over something like that who do i know yeah but i I just i think i think that it would be a a a nice way because basketball is both a team sport and and an individual sport i think the concept of a permanent individual trophy is something that would make sense in basketball and you still have the team stuff you still have the larry o'brien you still have everything else but that would add a little bit of intrigue. And of course, as the league gets bigger and bigger and we talk about more media outlets, that would definitely give some talking heads something to talk about. Well, absolutely. But, uh, you know, some of the, some of the, admittedly, I think some of the awards are, are silly. And like Kevin Durant said, like the media votes on some of these awards and we don't know what we're talking about. And I actually kind of agree with that. I think the, you know, one award is like the six man award is like, it's very contrived and Jamal Crawford has made his career off of getting six man awards, but half the time he's playing six man because they just don't want him to be out there having to play offense and defense. So he's on the bench, but we all know he's better than almost every shooting guard who's starting ahead of him in a lineup. Right. Um, And then we have defensive player of the year and we've given that award out to people who we're pretty good on defense, but like I think we've been able to now go back, especially in, with the use of analytics and and just being more thoughtful about these things. We've proven that certain players probably didn't deserve the defensive player of the year award either, right? And we can keep going into MVP and like you know, did Kobe deserve some of those MVPs? Did Steve Nash deserve an MVP? Derrick Rose? When anytime Jordan didn't win this year, whoever whoever doesn't win is gonna feel like TCU in the college football playoff where they feel like they got slighted and they probably should have been in the dance, right? So we do these awards more for ourselves to make ourselves feel uh, informed and so that we can point to something and say, hey, look, this is this is who won this award, so this means this. Uh, but I think people who pay the most attention to basketball and the players in particular and, and those other insiders, they know the real. So we... we we take it all with a grain of salt. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I'd even like to get your thoughts on, you know, because Kobe 
still uh, on one of the 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 Kobe Bryant media world tour he went on a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, he was like, you know, the media doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and he does feel some type of way that he didn't win the MVP, although in the same sentence, he said he doesn't care. Right. But we all know the players care. So do you think players should at least have a vote? in some of these awards or what would your be what would the best way be for you to resolve these issues i think that players coaches and the media should all have separate awards for best player i think that the only the only fair way to do because i wouldn't know how to weight it would you give the players half of the points and but my question to you as we get into this is do you think that the players because of their personal relationships and animosities and everything like that do you think that the players would be objective enough to be able to give an award and have it be considered fair? No, absolutely. And that's what makes it funny because <laughs> because it well, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I do think those players that really care pay the most attention. But it's kind of like in college basketball and college football when you have a coach's poll, right? And the coach's poll, look, what college football coach – like a college football head coach is arguably one of the toughest jobs in all of sports. You've got to control 70 to 80 to 90 kids, young men aged 17 to 22, um, and try to get them to be focused for 16 to 20 weeks during a year uh, just to play actual football, not to mention the offseason, right? And so then you're also going to be like, hey, tell us who the top 25 teams in college football are. And like they're probably paying attention to the the film, the team that they just beat, or they, they played, and the team they're about to play, and maybe general generalities that they just have in their mind. They don't have any idea. Not really. Like, I think NBA players who have been in the league a long time, they understand those nuances. But I think it takes players. I don't think all those players are that savvy either. And you can hear it with some of the things that they say from time to time. You know, they, they, they're, they're also very quirky, and they only pay but so much attention. I think you almost would remove certain biases and, and um, subjectivity if you gave everybody an equally biased vote. Because we know when the All-Star game – the fans are extremely biased and guys like Jeremy Lin almost make the all-star team. And we see Kobe Bryant make the all-star team as a rookie and, you know, so on and so forth. So like, I, I, I don't know if there's any words you said, the, the interesting word you use is weighted. I don't know what you would, how you would weight the ballot, so to speak, to make it fair, but it doesn't really matter how it comes out. Everybody was still debated. Everybody would say the other person is wrong, and we still have talking heads um, doing debate shows every single day for the rest of our lives. And plus, if coaches did one, maybe you'd see a situation like when the Big 12 coaches decided to gang up and screw Cal and future life champion Aaron Rodgers, and they'd do that for their own politics so that they could put their own team in, into the playoffs and make them make their school some more money. You sound... Um... Like you're calling for a hypocrisy, my brother. I don't know that 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 came out of left field. No, that, that's, that... that's it's not hypocrisy. It's just the it's just that when the incentives are in play, things can yeah. get complicated. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and so like that's um, unless people are willing to invest into as much nonpartisanship and neutrality as possible, so that at least we know who we can blame and not feel like anybody else had anything else to do with it. So like, again, we bring in up college football. Now they have this 13 person committee. We can scrutinize that group of people, but at least we feel like that was as fair of a shot as we're going to get 
from people that know the politics of football and know the game of football and blah, 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 blah. It, it makes us feel better that, oh, it's a committee and they seem smart and they seem intelligent. And they seem unbiased and things like that, whatever. But, you know, everybody gets it wrong. TCU should have been in a, in a Final Four, um, but they didn't. And anything the Big 12 got, they deserved. And I don't know what you're talking about with Cal because the Big 12 is the greatest conference in college sports, period. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I I love thinking about things like that and, and how it could work out. And then you get into the, all the crazy circumstances, like in very limited circumstances, because of how the Rose rule and this affected your team with Kevin Durant is that in certain situations, fans and if you want to say owners are actually sort of rooting against their own players succeeding because it changes their whole cost structure. Uh, absolutely. You think Portland isn't mindful of the fact that they were probably going to have to pay upwards to a hundred million dollars for Wesley Matthews. And now good luck with those negotiations. If you're a Wesley Matthews agent, like I hope you didn't like plan things out 12 months in advance for you to do some baller ass stuff. Right. Because I don't know how you would try to project what Wesley Matthews is worth coming off an Achilles injury. Right. So yeah, like, it was it was even fascinating. I remember thinking about the draft in 09. I remember I really wanted Oklahoma City to draft Tyreek Evans. And like of course I'm glad that we did not draft we the Oklahoma City Thunder because I claim myself as part of the delegation um that Oklahoma City did not draft Tyreek Evans, but you do think about the fact like hey, if we would have drafted someone like Tyreek, would have he then been worth possibly a max deal? playing for Oklahoma city. And then would that have, how, how would that have changed what the roster looks like now? Right. So those things are, and that's why I, I say that you should reward people who can cultivate their own talent because that just feels almost smarmy. Right. And you've got guys out here coming up with the greatest PowerPoint presentations of all time that are able to sell people on making these types of deals as in Daryl Morey and the Houston Rockets. And, and now, uh, th- and now you see teams like Philadelphia are trying to copy this blueprint and failing miserably. Well, let me rephrase. They're not failing miserably, but they're playing craps with the point being four. And the point four is like one of the hardest points to hit. And so they keep hitting like everything else but four, but they're not hitting seven either. And so this is ongoing game of craps and, and it seems like the game never ends. So anyway, you could tell I'm a degenerate gambler because who else would bring a craps uh, reference into a conversation about basketball like I did? I'm terrible. I'm sorry. Hey, it's it's always welcome, especially considering the current commissioner who you love so much is very supportive of gambling. Yeah, so feel free to insert the I love Adam Silver uh, bit here at any time. That'll be great. You know what's it's fascinating is maybe this is just whimsy, but I wonder how what are the percentage of players or what players play daily fantasy basketball? Like I I bet I would bet money and and I wish he was healthy. But I would bet money that Brandon Jennings is in a fantasy basketball daily league somewhere and only playing like himself, like and and, and, like just gunning for everything so he could win more money. Like I would just envision that in my mind. And that's kind of glorious and awesome. I I can imagine Dion Waiters propositioning one of those leagues to try to allow him to play himself in every roster spot because he can defend everyone. 
Yeah, of course. That would be great. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to get all Syracuse guys. It's going to be me and Melo. And then he's going to be trying to find, like, Johnny Hakeem, Flynn. Hakeem Warwick. Yeah, Hakeem Warwick or uh, Fab Melo. And he's like, why is my boy Fab not on here? Like, it would just be great. I would, You know, where is Jerry McNamara? Why is he not available in this daily league? I don't understand. But those are the things I'd be curious to see. Like, I And, and I wonder how much of that revenue – will also then be uh, factored into the new CBA as well. That's an interesting point. As a member of the delegation, do you ever catch yourself thinking what a backcourt with Eric Bledsoe and Russell Westbrook would have looked like? Uh, I imagine it would look like a game of Battletoads on Nintendo, uh, where it would just be nothing but destruction and chaos and a bunch of shrieking and yelping and and while everything around them just went to hell, and it'd be great. That backcourt against the Warriors would have been more fun than I can imagine. Oh, I mean, do you know the interesting thing about that is that, man, can we can we just talk about Stephen Curry for like forty five seconds? We can talk about Stephen Curry as long as you want. You know, you know my feelings on this. That dude. So I think the the, the new conversation du jour is who has the best handle in the NBA. And I think everybody's finally come to grips that it's only Kyrie and uh, Curry at this point. And I've just never seen someone like Russell Westbrook is the best at, you know, Russell Westbrook would be phenomenal as like a kick or punt returner, right? Because he can, he can navigate through crowds and find every crease to get to the end destination. Right. But Curry is very much like almost like Dante Hall from like 10 years ago as a punt returner. And I'm using all these other obscure references, so I apologize to anybody listening. But he just navigates himself through tiny crevices uh, between multiple players. And he never really looks out of control. And yet we already know how this is probably going to end, where it's going to be this like yellow three-pointer near with three people around him but nobody's even actually defending him because they've just been looking at him dribble crazily for the last five to seven seconds but he seems to do that almost like once a week now at first it was kind of like oh did you see that like you needed to rewind it but like that's happening on a recurring basis now and i watch westbrook guard curry and it's actually one of the things that i don't like talking about but Russell Westbrook cannot guard Stephen Curry like at all. Like he has no chance because Russell Westbrook is not here for your deception and he's not here for your tricks and shenanigans. And if you present that to him, his head can't handle it. So he just starts gambling and reaching. And then Stephen Curry is like open for three or he's sitting in the corner and he gives him this pump fake from hell. And Russell Westbrook goes flying 10 feet the opposite direction. And then Curry's wide open for threes. So to that point, Almost against anybody else, I'd be like, that would be a phenomenal matchup to see Westbrook and like other ignorant athlete point guard like Bledsoe against those guys. I can't necessarily speak for Westbrook, but he'd have no chance. He has no chance against Curry. And if they ever do play Oklahoma City and Golden State in the first round, they need to let Clay be guarded by Westbrook. And then go go put Roberson on 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 Curry instead. Like I'd feel better about that because I just feel like Roberson has a much more traditional way of playing defense. And every time I watch it happen, it makes my head explode. End soliloquy and rant right there. What I wonder about 
at, with Curry is that I know he works a ton on all, a lot of the shots he hits that people just don't see anywhere else. I've seen him practice a lot of those shots. I don't know if he does that with his dribbles, like the one that he did in, in, in the game against the Clippers that I've already told the NBA 2K dev team that they need to put into 2K16. I don't know if he improvises things like that or if he can if he practices that in the same way that he does everything else. Well, one thing if you watch pregame of Curry now is they've gotten hip to the fact that his dribbling warm-ups are kind of awesome to watch. And if you go on YouTube now, you can start to really find his dribbling um, warm-up practice videos and his drills that he's constantly doing. So you can just tell that he's worked on it. And I would imagine, too, that it probably didn't hurt that he had Mark Jackson with him uh, to help him with those types of things uh, to a certain degree. But I also think that because he's limited as an athlete, he's had to find ways to innovate his game and to give it more depth and breadth because I, I think a couple of things that he used to do a couple of years ago, and he actually doesn't do it as much now. Cause I think he's done a better job of creating space for his shots is his floater game was really good. And he would do these scoop shots. He's really high scoop shots. And it's like, where in the hell did he get that from? But you could tell he's worked on it. He's worked on all these different types of shots. Um, so like his game, his repertoire of, of, of shots, is really interesting. He's in this really interesting. He kind of reminds me of Kevin McHale. And when Barkley would would talk about McHale and say no one has more post moves than Kevin McHale, I would argue that no one has more shot options. Three float. He can he can do scoop shots. He can pull up from three. You know he can do fade. He can shoot a fadeaway. You know he's got so many options. And the fact that he can pair him with that handle, it's scary. And, and and it's a testament to like how hard he's worked, and I think he saved himself to a degree too because he's kept himself more healthy because he's been able to grow his skill set um, and not have to risk barging into the lane to try to like get to the free throw line and to like you know keep the offense honest. He can do that with his craft and skill instead. That's that's a great point, and it led me in a direction that I don't think you're going to see coming. Because to me, the two players that have improved the most with limited, if we want to call it pure athletic upside, from when they started in the league to where they are now, are Stephen Curry and almost Warrior Kevin Love. And what I find interesting about that is those are two guys who had the background of NBA player fathers, basketball in their blood, were around the sport forever, and. It's possible that they knew that improving while you were in the league is a part of being in the league, whereas some guys have to learn that and have to develop that over time. Hmm. That's interesting. That's that's an interesting call out. I mean, I think if you're going to say it about those two players, you could definitely say it about Clay Thompson, too, for sure. Um, and even a guy like Wes Matthews, who we were just talking about. Uh, yeah, I think that's a... Uh, an interesting evolution as far as kind of where their games have gone, where there's something there that's there's nothing that's could be more significant than having someone in your ear constantly that did it before you did it. And so I think that that type of experience and mentorship is invaluable. I mean, you hear Michael Thompson talk about his son, and it was comical at first to hear Michael Thompson talk about the fact that he had his son on an allowance, and like, you know, he would he would only give him so much praise, but like, you know, he still would be really hard on Clay. Uh, but I also think that people recognize great when they see it, and I think they've 
probably going to be much harder on their sons um, to help them achieve greatness more than anybody else. Um, so uh, I think there's something to that. And those guys are so – so like Wes, Wes Matthews, if he was in the East, I think he'd be an all-star. I definitely think he'd be an all-star. And he just – He's just stuck in the West where there's so many good guards. And 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 I think it's one thing to see that'll be interesting about Kevin Love because, you know, this time a year ago, Kevin Love's one of the 10 best players in the NBA. That would that was almost indisputable. And now he's turned into like Matt Bullard on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And like I think our boy Blatt has done a much better job of like giving love more options, especially in screen pop, um, screen and roll, pick and pop situations, roll into the rim um, to make use of the fact like, yo, Kevin Love is a an all around weapon. But if Kevin Love and the Cavaliers don't win a championship this year or at least get to the finals, I could see him bolting because I just think he's really prideful and understands who he is as a player. Um, and never taking for granted like the fact that players can be really vain but also you know it's going to be that confluence of you know Kevin Love cares about where his career is and how he's viewed but he also cares about where his career is and how he's viewed and he wants to be known as an elite player and right now he's being subjected to being somebody's Keith Van Horn instead and it's really sad I keep coming up with all these like uh white player uh references so I'm going to call him Sam Perkins instead um, and that makes me feel better. Or Channing Fry, that'll make you feel better. Yeah, Channing Fry, there it is. Good. Like, you know, that. But that's my like. Kevin Love is more than that. But Kevin Love is really good in what LeBron needs him to be in defense. So you know, it's this ultimate form of selfishness where he's not really being selfish, but he's totally being selfish at the same time. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting point. I was just trying to create a scenario where the Warriors could clear enough space to sign Kevin Love outright this summer. It's very difficult. You got much to, much more possible to do in twenty sixteen. You've got to relax, man. No, I can't relax. <laughs> it's my brain. But it I, what one of the things that I'm really excited about, and it's a little bit scary with your team, is that with the way that the cap is exploding, I think that players are going to have some really good options and it's going to be exciting to see what they want most. You know, do they want to live in a good city? Do they want to pull a Goran Dragic? Do they want to do what Carmelo did and facilitate going to their own team and doing all that? Or do they want something else? You know, do they want a good team or do they want it all? You know, do they want everything? I'm excited to see players with the option to do lots of different things. Yeah, because that's how we live life, right? when we're out of college or we're out of graduate school or, you know, we've worked a rock star job and then all of a sudden we have options. Life is really good. There's nothing better in life when you have options. Um, and I think we as basketball fans, we are insanely intrigued when we think about the players that we follow on a daily and with the notion of them wearing a different uniform and how that would look in this scenario in this system i think that's what drives everybody crazy about kevin durant maybe going to washington dc or west westbrook going to la or kevin love going to la or anywhere else i would just i think we should be mindful of giving players the benefit of the doubt in the fact that now more than ever players are taking ownership of their careers and not just in the fact that they want to make as much 
money as possible. But they also, for those that are really concerned about winning championships, being uh, being thoughtful about how they can manipulate that situation in their favor as much as possible. Or simply put, I just want to live a certain lifestyle. And let's be clear. There's nothing wrong with any of those three scenarios. I don't necessarily think Goran Dragic went about it the right way, but I applaud him in every way for being able to leverage that situation as best he could for him because owners have been doing that since the beginning of time when there was a thing called an owner and there was this thing between labor and owners and owners, right? So, you know, everybody's, everybody's entitled to do what they want. And I think we just have to be mindful, like, yo, this is not about what we think they should do. It's about what they want to do. And if you just leave it in those terms, I don't think that takes the fun away from the situation. But I think it at least least keeps people semi-grounded when it comes to free agency and trades and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've been covering the league now. This is my sixth year covering it. And one question people ask me a lot is, what have you learned from that? And the thing that I usually say is that beyond their kind of, in a way, superhuman athletic abilities is that these are human beings with families, with people that they care about, with things that they want to do. Some people are want to, you know, they want to be a kid forever. Some people want to, they want to be a, a business. They want to be a, whatever. And the beauty of having options is that we can find that out and there's no wrong or right way to do it. But I like that it feels to me, and this is also a, a factor with social media and everything now, that the human element is much more out there and also I would say much more appreciated than it used to be. Right. Unless you're Dwight Howard in the Los Angeles Lakers. Well, yeah, Dwight Dwight has his own things. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, he, he did him and he ended up in a situation he seems happy with it, so more power to him. There it is. There it is. Yeah, he's play, he's playing with the he's playing with the guy who would have been one of the best players in Oklahoma City right now. You're talking about uh I have no I'm not I'm not gonna acknowledge that. You I almost acknowledged it. I am kind of acknowledging it by acting like I'm not acknowledging it. But that's okay. Just uh I'm never coming on this podcast again. Yep, there's that. Oh <laughs> it's life life's so hard, Ed. It is, it is. Now you owe me two drinks. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time. It was a pleasure talking to you as always. <laughs> thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me, as always. Thanks again to Ed Mazinet for taking the time to come on. He is the editor-in-chief of the Sports Fan Journal, and he writes for SB Nation, so you can see him both those places. He is also an excellent follow on Twitter at EdTheSportsFan. That's E-D-T-H-E-S-P-O-R-T-S-F-A-N. You can get a link to his Twitter account and um, his Sports Fan Journal on Real GM's page for this podcast. So I, I like talking about this and getting specific with teams and going to do some of that, but now that we're getting closer to the playoffs, it's going to focus a little bit more on that. I also am looking to do an NCAA tournament podcast, at least one, this coming week, because while I like to keep this NBA focused, the NCAA tournament is both great and has a big NBA edge to it. So looking forward to doing that. As always, your comments, criticism, insight are much appreciated. And you can email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at dannylarue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I really do appreciate it because that is how we can make this the best podcast it can be, and I 
really do appreciate your insight. So thanks again to Ed for coming on. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.